You are listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha. Thank you for joining us. On the exchange today, we're back in the very capable hands of journalist Marcus Barnes, who has a conversation with Zephyrin Saint to share with us. Having a sound system is really about building your own speakers, getting your own gear together. Um, it's not just about the music, um, the music collection and the selecting, it's about the actual equipment side and having that technical ability. And it, and it's the sound system was our brotherhood because um, you know it was our way of, especially as young black men in the UK t- at that time, you know, that was our way of, of really connecting with each other, musically supporting each other as well. And yeah, you just, you just, it just becomes a part of your extended family. So back in the 80s, Zephyrin Saint supplied sound systems for Acid House Nights. He then became instrumental in bringing South African house artists over to the UK with his long-running club night, Tribe. He now resides in Melbourne, Australia, and in this chat, you're going to hear stories of working at the infamous Black Market Records, the process of linking up with estate agents to get the keys to warehouses in order to put on raves, plus Zephyrin Saint's stint in R&B management. I really hope that you have a wonderful listen to Zephyrin Saint on RA's Exchange. Hi everyone, this is Marcus Barnes. Welcome to the RA Exchange. Today I'm joined by Dean Zephyrin, who is somebody who I feel um, has been quite overlooked with regard to electronic music history in London and the UK. So it's a very, very great pleasure of mine to be able to chat to him today and to present his story. Dean, thanks for joining me, man. Hey, how you doing, Marcus? Yeah, very thanks good. Thanks for inviting me. Very good. And you're over there in Australia, so this is um, it's nighttime for you at the moment, isn't it? Or like the evening? Just time. about getting there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seven o'clock in the evening. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. And just just before we started recording, um, you said that things have relaxed over there, and like it almost feels like it's gone back to the UK in the nineties with like loads yeah. of yeah, yeah, loads of gigs. I mean, it's gone from zero to a thousand over over here at the moment. So it's like. You know, the dance floors are back open, you know, and, you know, parties all over the place. And, yeah, it, it's it's not uncommon to be doing, like, two, three gigs a night at the moment here. You know, Crazy. so it's, um, yeah, it's full on. Yeah, you, I guess you must be enjoying it, though, eh? I am, yeah. It's <laughs> good to be back in the, back in the booth. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, it's summer over here as well at the moment, so it's like there's day parties going on, and that that's what's... You know, you, you do a day party, you do a sun sundowners party, they call it, and then you do your late night mm. as well. So yeah, it's it's a really good vibe going on in Melbourne right now. So how long have you been involved in in music for now? Because I, to my understanding, it's been quite some time. Yeah, I mean, I would say, well, if we chart back to my first ever release, that was 1987. Wow. Yeah, so that was my first, but my first time in a recording studio was. Probably 1983. Wow. So, um, but yeah, so, but my yeah, 1987 was my first release. Yeah. And um, what was that release? Uh, that was a, a 
track called Give Me Back Your Love, um, Boys in Shock featuring Carol Leeming, uh, and it was on Jack Tracks Records. Right. And how did that come about? Well, it was all around the, just before the Summer of Love period in London, um, when, you know, House is really starting to um, become active. And um, there was a party called uh, Hedonism. Yes. And uh, that was kind of like one of the first um, acid house parties um, that kind of happened, I would say, warehouse, warehouse vibe. Um, and um, Soul to Solar provided the sound and Jazzy B was actually playing as well. And I, I just finished the track, uh, I think like maybe a couple of weeks before that. And, you know, those days, everything was kind of mastered on cassettes. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll take cassettes, you know, you know, cause you couldn't afford, you couldn't afford to kind of do the dub plate. You'll just do it on cassette and take it mm -hmm. out to play it, all right? So I, I took the cassette um, and uh, I just hit up Jazzy when he was playing. I said, you know, what do you think about playing this? What do you think about playing this? And, you know, and, and he was like, yeah, give it a spin. And he did. And um, and it went off. It, it went down really well. And it just so happened that Damien DeCruz, the the owner of uh, Jack Chat, was in the audience and was just like, "Yeah, come come to my office on you know next week, wow. and let's talk about this." And um, and that's how it happened. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. And so, what what led you up to that point in in eighty three to, to to sort of get yourself in the studio? You know, how did you first sort of get connected with music and then? get to the point where you're you're in a recording studio well I was in a I, just, I put together my own band in school and um, this is school day still and I had a band I was I was the drummer of the band um, and I'd written a couple of tracks and the, the music teacher in school was just like you know you guys need to go in the studio and uh, record this and he actually set it up for us to do that wow um, yeah make a demo so um so yeah, that was it. That was my first ever experience of being in a recording studio. Um, recording, just went in there and recorded for, for a whole day. Nice. Um, and put down these tracks, which I'd written. Um, and then from now, I was really hooked. <laughs> yeah. I knew, that, I knew that's what I wanted to be doing. Amazing. And, and um, what kind of music were you making at that point then? Oh man, that was, I don't know what you could call it. It was, <laughs> it was kind of a mix between a Spandau ballet kind of, funk soul mm. kind of uh, pop track i guess you know because wow. yeah it was kind of spandau ballet was kind of running things at those days from a pop point of view and i think it was yeah. kind of yeah it was kind of reminiscent of that <laughs> yeah. yeah where did you grow up grow up in harrow uh, okay. uh, a town called harrow yeah. yeah yeah northwest and what was that like for you it was great, man. It was, um, you know, was, there was a very, um, it was very mixed culturally, um, you know, amongst the West Indian community, the Indian community, as well as the English community. So there was a lot of, uh, yeah, it was great to grow up in that environment where you was amongst a lot of different cultures mm. um, and still have your own identity there as yes. well. Um, uh, but yeah, it was great. It was, you know, we, we were growing up in um, Harrow, there were quite a few sound systems. So nice. we, had our, we had our own little sound system 
territories going on mm. in those days. Um, there was probably around four or five of us uh, from Harrow at the time um, that would play in the community halls, um, wherever we could hire, really. Wherever we could hire, you know, we used to pull up the sound, whether it was a church hall, a community hall, a scouts hall, wherever. And um, yeah, and that's how we used to run our parties back in, the day, back in those days. So how did you go about setting up a sound system then? How does that work? Well, um, the sound system that I was a part of was actually my brother's. Right. Um, and, um, and, you know, and that's kind of how it goes in a lot of the sound system uh, cultures is that, you know, it's kind of handed down. Mm-hmm. And um, my oldest brother, Wes, um, he initially started the sound systems uh, in our family. Um, then it went on to Stan, Stan Zeff, who was still out there doing his thing um, in Atlanta. And, um, and then myself and Stan, um, I was kind of doing my own little parties. And then it got to a point where myself and Stan was just like, oh, let's just join together and just do our sounds together. Because we, we, we all, the sound system was there, but we would all use it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And then we just kind of like, just came together and, and started a, a new sound. And that sound was called Shock. Um, and yeah, your question was, how do you go about starting a sound? I mean, with <laughs> having a sound system is really about, you know, building your own speakers, mm. you know, um, getting your own gear together. Um, it's not just about the music, um, the music collection and the selecting, it's about the actual equipment side mm. and, and, and having that technical ability um, together as well. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, and, and, it, and it's, I guess, you know, the sound system was our brotherhood, mm. you know, because, um, you know, it was our way of, especially as young black men in the UK t- at that time, you know, uh, that was our, our gang, if you so, so to speak, you know, mm. for want of a better word. Yeah. Brotherhood. And that was our way of, of really connecting with each other. Nice. Um, musically supporting each other as well. Um, and yeah, you just, you just, it just becomes a part of your extended family. Yeah, man. It feels to me like um, being involved in music was pretty inevitable for you. Pretty what, sorry? Inevitable. Yes. Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I grew up in a room of records and speaker boxes <laughs> That's, those are my earliest memories, you know. Um, it was just wall-to-wall records and wall-to-wall speaker boxes. And, you know, as when my brothers would go out to work um, on a Saturday for their part-time jobs, I would just be in, indoors just playing the records. And, you know, that's all I'd be doing as a, as a young kid. Um, what kind of records did they have? Uh, um, soul, jazz, uh, jazz funk. Um, yeah, we're, we're very much a, a soul music family. Nice. So, um, yeah, and jazz. So, um, yeah, that was predominant. And funk. Funk mm-hmm. was very, uh, you know, um, yeah, Parliament. Yeah, um, man. Yeah, James, all that kind of vibe was uh, uh, very at the forefront. And were your parents pretty supportive in, in all of this activity as well? Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Um I mean, you know, anything, you know, I wanted to learn a new instrument every other week. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, 
you know, I wanted to learn the cello. And, you know, my mum took me down to West End for us to pick up a cello, you know, to hire a cello. You know, couldn't buy it. You had to hire it. And, um, you know, so, um, and then, you know, I wanted to play guitar and then I wanted to play drums and I wanted to play. So I was very supportive. Um, uh, And my mum plays as well. She she plays piano. Oh, wow. um, Okay. Yeah. So uh, we always had a piano in our house. It was always there. Yeah. And and you know all my all my siblings learned to play the piano. It was kind of like part of our upbringing, I guess. So how how did you um how did you end up going to warehouse parties and sort of connecting with with that side of things? It was through the sound system, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so house kind of made its presence in the UK around '86. And we were soul sound around them times, 85, 86, playing rare groove, soul. Um, and then I remember my brother Stan bringing home a record, No Way Back, mm-hmm. um, from Adonis. And, um, and then that was it. It was just like, what the hell is this, man? What's this music? Where does this come from? You know? Um, and then we just went searching for it. Do you know what I mean? We just all went, you know, just sort of searching for the, the music. And, you know, um, and partly it wasn't just myself and my brother we had other members of the sound as well Ashley Beadle um, was mm. part of the sound um, Ricardo DeForce from KLF uh, rest in peace he was he was a member of the sound uh, Cecil Paul Maynard we had different members um, and we were all out there searching you know what I mean for the music and coming together Did you, you hear this one you hear that one and you know um, and those days we used to house wasn't getting played in the UK um, wasn't getting played in London um, we were playing it in the Midlands in um, in Leicester right and that's and that's where and in Nottingham and Derby and that's where house was really going off I think we didn't go and play in Manchester but in the Midlands it was going off and that's you know we'll you know jump in a van hire a transit van and uh, jump in a van and all go up there and and play with a, a, another sound up there called Classic Groove. And, you know, and it was a, at first it was a culture shock because, you know, those guys up there were, they were jacking. They had this thing, you know, they were jacking, yeah. you know, and they were pushing each other up in the air, and, <laughs> you know. And it was at first, it was like, what the hell is this? You know, how the, you know, how have they discovered this? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and seeing how to how to respond to it, and mm. it was so fresh. Um, so yeah, so that scene was going off. And in London, the only place I could go and hear house music at that time was Heaven, right. Colin Favor, which is a gay yeah. club. Yeah, um, used to go there Monday night, Wednesday night. Um, still not not much of a, a warehouse scene going on for house, but a warehouse scene was coming in for the whole rare groove scene. Sure. You know, shaking finger pops, soul to soul. So that's kind of like where a lot of the warehouse parties and, you know, just, you, you want to go out, that's where you're going. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? You, you, that's a scene that you wanted to be a part of. You had to go in, into illegal parties to listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that was nothing new to us. Before that, it was it was blues parties, you know, mm-hmm. in houses, like with sound systems like Rap Attack. Um, um, and you know, you just go to a house on a on a Saturday night, and you come out Sunday afternoon. 
You've know, <laughs> just been raving inside a house all night. So it was nothing new. And um, and I just think what when you think when I think back at it, a lot of those houses were death traps, really. If something had happened, it would have been a big problem. Um, but um, yeah, I just think that we just kind of outgrew the houses because it, that scene was just getting big and it kind of went into the warehouses, you know. Um, people started to link up with estate agents um, to get keys to warehouses. And that's really? kind of and that's what was going on. That became the in thing, like, okay, you need an estate agent hookup. <laughs> to get keys to get into a warehouse to throw a party um, yeah so um yeah so you just kind of become part of the whole scene and that's kind of what you're looking for you know everyone's mm. looking for the warehouse spot to do a party because we couldn't party in the west end yeah you know as a black man in those days you won't get any clubs in the west end mm-hmm. you know what i mean so there's no way they're going to let you uh come and do a party there mm-hmm. um and uh, I guess that started to change when Soul to Soul got Africa Center. Yes. Because it, it wasn't yes. part of that whole club scene, but it, it was bang in the middle of the West End. And um, yeah, that kind of started to change things. I think when people start to see the potential of what it could be mm-hmm. by allowing the black community to um, come in to the yeah. West End. You know? I, I guess as, as soon as... Uh club owners or whoever see that there's an opportunity for more money to be made, then they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> this is it. This is it. Yeah, because it was a, there was a black man's West End, which is Dolston High Street. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's where you <laughs> used to get a lot of, um, you know, more of the reggae clubs would be going on down there. What was it that caught you? And what was it that sort of got you and the rest of the guys in the sounds going, like, we need to find more of this? Like, what, you know. The energy, the yeah. energy of it. Yeah, the energy, the tempo, the baseline. And around that whole, you know, just before the whole Acid House kind of came, you know, the music that was kind of coming out of Chicago, Chicago predominantly was really baseline drum driven. And that had such an effect at that time. Mm. You know, it, it felt like freedom. Yeah. You know what I mean? um, and... And, and the lyrics were really, really simple, but they engaged you, man. We're, we're rocking down the house, you know, no way back, time marches on. Mm. You know, there were, just, there were just kind of lyrics that just kind of really engaged you on the dance floor. Mm. Yeah, big time. And they still do to mm. this day. <laughs> they still do to this day, yeah. They still do. They still do. But there was, I think there was just something about the simplicity mm-hmm. of it all. Um, you know, and I think I think coming out of that period in London when it was kind of like things were very much on the rare groove tip, it just came as a smack, you know, just came as a smack. Like this, this is something. This is something else, you know. Yeah, man. I, I interviewed Kid Bachelor a couple of years ago, and he said exactly the same thing. And actually, um, quite a few people of, of that generation have said similar. Fabio and Groove Rider as well saying, you know, the, the rare groove thing was, was brilliant, but it almost became a bit too serious. Yeah. And then, and then you know, house popped up and it's just like completely flipped things on its head. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, because, I mean, I loved the rare groove scene. I loved it, but it, it did become very fashion orientated. Mm. Um, yeah, so it kind of came, came like, you know, what are you wearing? You know, how do you want to be seen? Whereas there was a uniform that came with house. It was jeans, Converse, and a T-shirt. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and you know, and that just appealed to so many people. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It was just kind of stripped, you know, all of that away. And it's just like just, you know, just go out and be yourself, man. Yeah. Know? Yeah. It's, and it's that's such an important thing, you know, just freedom of self-expression and just being able to yeah. feel comfortable being yourself. Exactly. Where do things go from there? And uh, were you were you gigging around other places as well, or was, or was Rip like your home base that you kind of well, focused most of your energy on? For, for that summer, it was because I mean you couldn't, you know, we were there, we were there every weekend, mm-hmm. you know, so you couldn't really gig. We did, we did the odd, you know, I'd do the odd things in uh, in the week, um, you know, you had little parties going on around the places, but that was really the mainstay. Um, but um, after that, I got a job in um, Black Market. Oh nice. Uh, yeah, it just it just opened and I got a job, I think they're in 89. Um wow. working behind the counter as a young lad. Um and yeah, and, and so yeah, my attention kind of turned towards that market around that time. After then, as well as being in the studio, I was doing I was doing quite a bit of work in the studio at that time. And um yeah, that's that's kind of what that's that's kind of where it went after that. And you know, the sound continued, but with all the new record stores popping up, mm-hmm. more DJs popped up. Yeah. And um people didn't really want or understand, well, why do I need to hire a sound system? Or why do I when I could just hire that one guy mm-hmm. who's gonna come with his records and play? Um so the culture of what we were bringing as a sound system didn't really survive within the house format um, as the house grew because, uh, you know, there was just so many DJs coming up around that time um, yeah. who were a lot cheaper. And, yeah. you know, and, and then the West End clubs were opening their doors and the West End clubs had sound systems. Yeah. So it wasn't necessary anymore. You know what I mean? Whereas in the warehouse days, you know, you needed a sound. You needed to mm. bring that in. So as the warehouse days died out um, and the house parties died out, so did the sounds. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah, mm. so there was a change there. There's a change there that, sh- that kind of happened around, I would say, 1991. And we were, we were left more so just kind of like doing our annual event at um, uh, Notting Hill Carnival. Right. With the whole okay. sound. And that was, that was really the became like the the only opportunity to really to bring out the whole sound system. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Um, because it got quite big, but, but you know, it, the, the sound ended up getting pretty big um, as a system. Nice. Nice. And what are we doing in terms of recording then at the moment? Then, you know, that, that first Jack Tracks release, um, did that sort of set you up for having, you know, a, a bit more success with in terms of yeah, recordings? Yeah, well, well, what I what I was doing, I was I was there was demo deals flying around after right. that, you know what I mean? Um, so I was, I just found myself doing these demo deals for like Universal and EMI, um, and not that much came out of it. Um, and when I look back in hindsight, I would have said oh, I should have just focused on being independent rather than trying to go down the major route. Do you know what I mean? Because mm. you you go down the major route, they 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 you know, they'll hang you, hang, hang you up doing stuff, doing stuff, promising everything. And then if nothing materializes out of it, 
then you've got nothing to show for it. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, right. So, um, so yeah, I spent I was spent quite a bit of time, I think, doing that because you know, with all the excitement that was going on, um, yeah, it was uh, it was between myself and Adamski oh, um, no at Universal. <laughs> yeah, and um, and I just think that you know, we I came in with the sound. And as Adamski came in by himself, it's that same kind of thing, right? Again, right, that, yeah. it was Adamski and and um, and the young Seal at the time. Wow! And uh, yeah, and uh, and that's the deal that got signed to Universal. But we were all doing that. I'm friends with Adamski. We were, we were all I used to go and hang out at his squat and stuff, and um, we were all kind of doing deals, all trying to find the deal. Do you know what I mean? Wow! Uh, so yeah, it was an interesting time. And what was it like, um, just in terms of society at large? And what were you doing much outside of music? Did you have much time to sort of, you know, have, build yourself like a bit of a personal life, or was it like, you know, all-consuming? Yeah, I think I think around those times, I just remember partying every day, or <laughs> being in the record store, or being in the studio. That's all, you know, between eighty-eight and ninety-two. That's all I kind of remember. Wow. You know what I mean? It was just like you were just going out or you were you were in the studio days on end or you know you were DJ. Wow. Um yeah, that that was I was just kind of fully consumed by the music. And, um, and what what did the world what was the world like at that time? Because I, I was like seven, so you know I have all I remember is like cartoons going to school and like, I don't remember mm, mm, like, you know, mm, being aware of politics or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, obviously the Berlin Wall came down mm. around the 88 time. Um, I think it was 88 or 89. Um, but, you know, I was still, I was still very much, eight, I was 18 then. Mm, okay, so yeah. um, I wasn't really paying attention to what was going on in the rest of the world. I was paying attention to what music I wanted to buy. Do you know what I mean? Um, or, or what party I wanted to go to. Or, do you know what I mean? But at the same time in saying that, um, what was going on for um, myself in terms of with my culture, I was rediscovering it. So outside of music, I was rediscovering, uh, not re or not rediscovering, I was discovering myself as a black man because mm. there was a lot of information that was um, suddenly available, you know? Um, wasn't, well, it just, it just became available to a lot of us um, in, that, in that time. Um, and I remember reading Malcolm X's autobiography and that mm. kind of opened it all up to me to like, you know, okay, I need to go and find out about my history. Mm. because you know we weren't taught it anywhere right no, you weren't yeah. taught about um your history as a an, an african in school so um we just you know i just never had access to any of that information mm. so around the time of 17 18 19 if it wasn't music i was reading and um trying to find out more about my history um you know i was listening to uh, tapes from Malcolm X's speeches and Farrakhan's speeches, and, mm. um, you know, and g going to meetings to see, you know, to discover more, you know, um, and yeah. So a lot of a lot of my spare time as well around that time was 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 um, spent empowering myself. Amazing. 
Yeah. So and and you know it, and it was a it was a revolution. Yeah. It was a revolution because you know it it came through the music. Mm. You know it, it came through hip hop predominantly yeah. at that time. Yeah. Um, you know was a one of the real kind of mediums to propagate um, black culture and black mm. history. And that's where we were finding out a lot about it in those days. And then it came with the fashion as well, the pendants, the African pendants and so on, and, and kind of, you know, just kind of wearing things which are more of your own culture. Yeah. Um, you know, whether it be a hat or beads or whatever it may be. So that side started to um, coming, I would say, around the late 80s into the 90s yeah. as well. I remember um, that. I remember yeah. that very well. Yeah. And I remember I remember going over to the States. I think I went about, I think I went about 91, 90. I went to 90. And I actually just went there just to go in and uh, buy books. I was going there to buy books and I spent most of my time on 125th Harlem. Wow. Just listening to people. I remember, I remember coming out of the station and there was a uh, uh, like first weekend I was there, and it was KOS One and De La Soul, um, and all these kind of conscious rappers performing uh, in a street party. Wow! Um, yeah, yeah, I was there to just get kind of gather knowledge. And what does that do for you as a as a young man growing up in London? You know, you grew up in a multicultural area, but perhaps weren't as connected to your history as, as you could have been had you been given the opportunity to learn. But then you start to learn independently. You go to America and you experience all of this stuff and you're reading a lot. What, what does that do for you in terms of like your identity and like finding your place in, in London and, and, and in music to a certain extent as well? But, well, it gives you confidence. Mm. I mean, that was the reason why, because I think, you know, as, as a young a young West Indian man, you know, there's a lot of confidence that's kind of taken away from you, mm. you know, um, whether it be in school or whether it be in your career, you know, you get passed over a lot. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So your, your, your confidence keeps getting, you know, growing up in the UK around that time, your confidence keeps getting taken away from you. Mm. And um, so, you know, I, amongst many others, were really trying to find that, you know, well, you know, where's my value here? I need to know what my value is. Do you know what I mean? Um, so you go looking for it. Mm. And, and that's what it, that's what it, you know, that's what it kind of, it, it helps build your sense of purpose. Yeah. You know, because, you know, it, it, it wasn't uncommon, you know, to have racist remarks chucked at you those days, you know? Mm. Um, every day or if you're going into the wrong area um, or, you know, to get chased by skinheads if you're yeah. on the Todd walking through the, walking through Carnaby Street because you want to go down there and get a Pringle jumper. But, you know, you have to go through the skinheads to try and get, get to wow. what, what it is that you want. Do you know what I mean? So that was just, it was very common. So, you know, that, all of that kind of eats away and you've got to, you, you know, it, you had to kind of find an identity within all of that and that's what um seeking that knowledge um that's what it that's what it gave me that's really great to hear man really great to hear that you know i guess in a in a very 
direct way music encouraged you to learn more about your history, gave you some of the little tidbits of information, and then you could then go on to find confidence to just, you know, be that person that you could have been had you been given that information earlier. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, very much so. And yeah. so how, how did that feed into to the music music culture of, of London? I, I remember last time we, we did an interview, you were talking about um, like there, were, there was a specific party that had like a name that was inspired or had like African Im- imagery on the flyer and stuff. And Yeah, yeah. So yeah, a, a lot of the parties um, that, that um, used to throw around that time, um, we used to incorporate what we had learned, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, and really try and promote that. And, and, and bring that culture into the music, whether it be um, making it by introducing a lot more uh, African percussion mm. um, or visually pulling up banners that replicated that or calling our, uh, you know, calling our parties, um, uh, you know, Afrocentric words, you know what mm. I mean? Um, and we really just tried to incorporate all of that into it. Um, and, you know, it, it was, I think that was happening across a few different scenes. It was happening in the hip-hop scene. Um, I don't think outside of what we were doing as a sound, it was happening in the house scene. Um, but it was more so in the hip-hop scene and, and the soul scene to a certain degree. Um, yeah, so I think as you learn something and you're excited about something, you just kind of you want to tell the world, right? And you want to spread it. And that's kind of what was going on um, at the moment. We really wanted to kind of like, you know, bring this, our culture into the music. Mm-hmm. And there was, only, there was only a few tracks around that time that kind of had an African influence. Um, Mafumbe um, and Kid, uh, Kid Bachelor, they, you know, with their Warriors dance. Mm-hmm. They did, they did uh, that track. Um, yeah, so it was, uh, whenever there was that kind of influence, it really lit up the party. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it lit up the club. Because, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't many black people on, in the house scene in the UK. It wasn't like in the States where it's predominantly black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It was completely, it was an opposite thing in the UK. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, so there were, there were, very few of us who was in there um, as as uh, black people. All of us who was in it as black people were very conscious and very free. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Um, and we weren't, you know, we weren't the ones who were, you know, because you know, was I was never part of the whole drug scene. We mm-hmm. were there for the music. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? There were those who were there for the drugs, but we were there for the music. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I, I interviewed um, a guy called Gerald a little while back, and um, mm. he's he's very vocal about um, the fact that when he first started going to events where house yeah. music was being in, introduced to clubs, they were predominantly black events. And then there was this massive shift where uh, a lot of the people that he and this, these are, this is, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but he, he was like, a lot of the people that were turning up to raves after there was this like big summer of love thing with people that he would have see, seen as being like indie kids, but because they knew that there was like this freedom around or hedonism and sort of drug taking 
that they all sort of like gravitated towards the house scene because they just they thought oh yeah drugs <laughs> do that and, yeah. Um, yeah and and he's yeah. he's he's sort of quite disparaging about that and I I really respect that honesty that he he has around yeah that. <laughs> well it's, yeah that's an interesting point because um, when we used to play in Leicester um, and in the Midlands it was predominantly black mm. it was into house music it was yeah. predominantly black because where's he from Sheffield or uh, Manchester. Manchester. Manchester, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so yeah, it was predominantly black <clears throat> when we used to play up there. Mm. But that wasn't the case. That wasn't the case in London at the time. It wasn't the case. In fact, it never was the case where it was predominantly a black scene. But it was all black music. Mm. It was all black music. So interesting, man. So interesting. Uh, it's, there's, um, there's been a lot of um, talk over the last few years about... Um, reframing the narrative around um the whole kind of acid house revolution because you know there's this mythology now around like four guys go to ibiza go to amnesia discover acid house and bring it back to the uk however you know to a lot of people say there was a lot of house stuff going on before that and that shouldn't necessarily be called the inception point because there was a lot of stuff pre that and it's um it's interesting that that narrative was so dominant for such a long time but now yeah. other voices are being given a platform and yeah. it's being reframed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not even sure which year they did go there. But yeah, I know they were at the parties where we were playing. Hmm. So um, it feels like you were doing so much and you continue to do a lot as well. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of figuring out, like, what should I, what should I focus on? Um, I like the... I'm really interested in Black Market because um, that's a place where I used to go in my teens and it's a place that a lot of people will be familiar with because it was such an iconic record shop um what was it like working there and, and what was it like kind of being on the front line so to speak and seeing things develop in that way yeah well at first it was very intimidating because you know you're 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 serving up you know the dons of the scene yeah. at that time do you know what i mean and not just in the uk but um, those DJs who are visiting as well, mm -hmm. Tony Humphreys, Morales, you know, um, everyone, it was anyone would pass through Black Market. Um, and, but it was, you know, it was a fantastic time. I, I worked um, the counter with Dave Piccioni, uh, Frankie Fonset, uh, Stafford, and uh, Noel Watson. Um, who nice. was doing like, the delirium at the time you yeah. know so it was like it was a amazing period of my life you know to be as a student to all those guys mm. do you know what I mean because they you know they're all much older than me yeah um and um yeah so um so it was intimidating at first hmm. you know being amongst those guys and you know you you want to get on the turntables and and play for it you know but you got to wait your turn you know there was a there was a bit of that going on, you know, you're not quite ready to get up to that stage yet. Yeah. You know right. So, um, <laughs> um, so yeah, it was cool. So yeah, I, I spent many years working there. Um, and then um, Dave Piccioni actually took it, took it over, um, mm. took over the store. And then I ended up managing the shop for Dave. Um, wow. Uh, so I, I left there around 94. Right. 94, 95, I worked up there too. Um, and whilst I was there, I was also, um, David started Azuli Records. 
uh, and I was um, also working in the office, you know, doing the label um, management stuff for uh, Zulu. And that's kind of really where I learned. Black Market and Zulu was where I learned about the music industry. Wow. That's, you know, that's, you know, that's where I, I cut my teeth mm. in terms of learning distribution, sales, you know, um, you know, mastering. What, what is it? What, how do you go from, you know, receiving the DAT tape to getting, this, to getting the record in the store? Do you know mm. what I mean? Um, and that's kind of where I learned all of that under Dave. Um, and um, yeah, yeah, it, it was, that was my university, I always say, that market. Brilliant. And, mm. And from from where you are now with, with hindsight, did it did it does it feel like it was a, a professional setup? What black market? A, and Zulu, and Zulu, yeah, 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 big time, very That's very cool. professional, very mm. professional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, um, yeah, it, it was it was run very well. Um, you know, every, everyone was on commissions in there. You know, I, I mean, what record store has has a commission system? <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, um, you know, everyone's like, yeah, yeah, on a Friday night, everyone's like looking for the commissions. How much do we sell this? How much do we sell, you know? Um, yeah, it was, it was run like clockwork. Yeah, yeah, it was a really, really good system. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Good stuff. And what were you doing studio-wise then around that period? Up to sort of 94? I was building one. Right. I was building it. I was building a studio. So... Um, I, I I took over a disused building in Shepherd's Bush, and um, and proceeded to build a studio. Um, I put together a, a business plan. Um, I approached the Prince's Trust, um, who had just kind of not been going not so long, um, and um, I got a grant and a loan from them. It was actually myself and. Um, there was two music companies that they invested in because yeah. they were very scared to do it. And it's myself and Mo Wax. Wow. He was the other, he was the other one who got a grant and a loan. Wow. And um, yeah, and then I just, I took over this building and I started to build a recording studio. Um, and with the rest of the space, I rented it out to other others and mates who also wanted a studio. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of when I left uh, Azuli and Black Market, it was to do that. It was to run my own business um, and studio. And wow. the idea, the idea was, um, the idea was to have my own studio and you know make music all day and you know and rent it out sometimes, you know, for other people. But it didn't go like that. It just kind of those those days studios were uh, few and far between um, in terms of like the cost price to get into it, which is what my whole plan was in the first place, was to make a, an affordable recording studio for the scene. And it just took off and everyone just wanted to rent the studio. <laughs> I could hardly get time in there myself. And um, yeah, so it just became this predominant studio, you know, um, that was just used by just loads of people. I mean, uh, Femi Femme, Young Disciples is always in there recording. Uh, Steve Gervio was always in there recording. Um, you know, so it was just kind of used for all different kinds of um, genres, 
as well. Even had Alton Ellis in there as well, doing some, some of his dubs. So, um, yeah, so it, it, that kind of took off. And then uh, from my experience at Azuli, um, working with artists um, on the label, I just picked up so much that when people came to the studio and was kind of like, you know, oh, how do I do this or how do I do that? They just kept asking me questions. How do you do this? How do you do that? And, you know, I, I guess I kind of picked it up and I started to read a little about mm. music business and kind of gather some more knowledge. And then I got asked to be a manager. Hmm. And then that just kind of like, just took my whole focus. I was like, okay, I'll give that, I'll give that a go. And I became, I became a manager for the next 10 years, managing um, producers, singer songwriters and artists. And uh, wasn't my plan, wasn't where I expected to be going. <laughs> that wasn't my intention at all, but it just kind of happened that way. And I think, I think, you know, when you set up a business, it becomes different. You know what I mean? You've got bills to pay, you, you know, I was out of that period of kind of like working for somebody, I was actually creating something. So yeah. there was a lot of responsibilities that came with that. Yeah. Um, as well, around that time, my two children were born. Um, not long after. So there was a lot of responsibilities that was coming, um, mm. which, which, um, which kind of like, you know, led me to think, okay, I've got to kind of shift my focus here, mm. you know, to what I'm doing. And I don't regret it um, because I, I, I got so much out of it in that, ex uh, that experience of managing. And it got me to see a lot of different parts of the world you know, at that stage, you know. Oh, you did a lot of traveling, did you, as well? Yeah, well, I yeah. spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time in the States predominantly. Right. Um, because my first recording deal was um, with an artist I was managing. Um, uh, the first deal was with uh, DreamWorks. Oh, wow. In the okay. States. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd been going to Canada uh, with a producer I was managing at the time, C-Swing, um, making contacts there. And then got introduced to DreamWorks and A&R DreamWorks. Um, took went, flew over there. Took took the you see th those days. You know I couldn't afford the flight, so I'll go on these courier flights. <laughs> we used to have these. Used to have courier flights that you go to the travel. I had this travel agent, and they'll they'll put you on like a last minute like uh, like a list, and you say, okay, yeah, I'm ready to travel in the next two weeks. Just call me when, right? No way. And you'll just take a. a a corporate document right because it was cheaper than them doing it through where whatever fedex or dhl mm. and you just take a corporate document um and you pick it up at the airport and you someone else picks it up at the other end of the airport and then you just stay there for however long you want to stay there no so uh, and then come and then do it on the way back so that's how i was <laughs> traveling to the states to to do my to do my meetings over there because wow. otherwise otherwise there was no way i was i could afford to get over there so yeah, so I was traveling over there and uh, meeting with companies and I met with DreamWorks and yeah, they signed a deal. They did a deal. So that meant that half my time was spent in the UK as well as spent in LA. Wow, um, man. So I was going back and forth between London and LA a lot around the late 90s. Um, what, was that, what was LA like in the late 90s, man? Um, well, there wasn't much of a nightlife scene. Yeah. 
um, that I was aware of. I was I was more so aware of it later. I didn't know it was there. I didn't I didn't really have those connects with like um, Marcus White and so on um, at that time. Um, but um, yeah, there wasn't much of a. It's more to me. It was more of a day day city and. The project which I had signed to DreamWorks was very much an R&B project. Right, um, wow. And um, it was produced, um, the artist's name was Danny DeBorg and it was produced by um, 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 a production team that were hot at that time called Tim and Bob. Um, right. They'd just done John B, um, um, Cisco, Thong Song, mm. all those kind of cuts. Mm. So they were hot. And they were, so yeah, I, I was just spending time in the studio with them. And then that was another period when I was just kind of soaking up and because I hadn't been in that environment of a studio. Mm. You know I mean, this is, this, is when, this is when you're talking about, you know, in the record part and so on, when the producers there have got like three studios going at the same time. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then, you know, and, uh, a young Pharrell was in another studio. You know hmm. what I mean? And, uh, you know, all, all, all these up-and-coming producers at the time were in the same... I was, I was coming across them. I was meeting them. They were all in the same, you know, same environment. And they got Janet Jackson working in one room and they got, uh, you know, uh, Cisco working in another room. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it was crazy. It was a crazy <laughs> time. But I just learned so much about production um, watching those guys work, you know, um, song arranging and production it was just it was a blessing to be able to be in that environment and watch that level of producer create yeah can you you know, from start to finish yeah. Yeah, yeah that was that was yeah so so I was doing that and then um and then once I got one deal under my belt I was just like okay I should try this again hmm. um and then there was um uh, a singer who was coming to the studio to record and she just caught my attention. Um, uh, her name was uh, Terry Walker. And nice. um, yeah, and we just hit it off. We just hit it off straight away. Um, and she asked me to manage her and, and the rest is history. And we just created um, uh, her first album. And what I had learned from the guys in the States is about production deals they were all into production deals out there. Finish your project first, then take it and license it to um, the majors. Mm. Um, so I picked up from talking to the managers of the R&B and acts and stuff like that, I picked up a lot. So um, with Terry, that's exactly what we said about doing. We finished an album um, and then shot the album. And um, I, got on my Korea ticket again and I went over and uh, I went to um, Atlantic, uh, a couple of other labels, but it was Def Jam who, um, who picked it up from over there uh, and signed her. Um, and then, yeah, and then we just released this great album. Brilliant. Really untitled. Yeah, done, done really well for her. Um, yeah, it was amazing. that was amazing. And what did what did all of this activity do for you on a on a personal and professional level? You know, you're you're sort of you know interacting with these globally renowned labels, and you've kind of stepped into management, not really out of uh, you know any kind of plan, but you're you're in it and you're doing it, and it's and it's working well for you, man. Yeah, I mean, what did it do for me? 
um, it opened my eyes to the industry even more. Um, mm. it, 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 it kind of, I gained so much experience from it, but deep inside, I knew it wasn't what I really wanted to be doing. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, it wasn't what I really wanted to be doing. I wanted to, I wanted to be doing the music. I wanted to be making music myself. Do you know what I mean? Um, and, and I think that's kind of, yeah, I, I kind of got to a point where, yeah, that's, I knew that that's what I had to do. You know what I mean? I knew that I knew that I had to kind of like, if I was going to do it for myself, I've got to, I've got to make that jump at some point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as, as amazing as an experience as it was and, and the opportunities that it, it brought about, I just knew that that's not where I wanted to lay my hat. Yeah. So to speak, I didn't want to sit at those tables, um, and I was sitting at the I was sitting at the tables, um, but I didn't really want to be sitting there. It's not where where I wanted to be. It wasn't a desk I wanted to be behind. That's really you know interesting, mean? man. How how do you how do you kind of how do you make that shift? Because it can't be easy to kind of almost turn your back on. You know, it, it seems like you had quite a, a reasonable level of success there. And it can't be easy to just kind of go, but my heart's not in this. I want to do this. And maybe if I, if I go into this other thing where my heart's at, it could be a little bit of a risk, you know, and I may not necessarily attain that level of success that I've already got. Well, you know, we, we, we can plan, but the universe plans better. Yes. Right? So, so <laughs> at, at the time, you know, um, the, recording studio business was going under because computers were coming in and people um, were able to, you know, and we'd gone from MPC 60 up to MPC 3000 now. So, you know, people were able to recording that uh, to a certain degree in their own home. So my affordable studio level was kind of getting pushed out of the market. Mm. Um, so that wasn't going, uh, that wasn't going well for me um, uh, as a business. Mm. And uh, some of my artists had moved on to other managers. They had outgrown me and, and gone on to a next le uh, uh, another level. So I found myself um, taking a year out, shutting oh, it all wow. down. Yeah, I found myself taking a year out, shutting it, shutting it all down and spending time with my children because I hadn't spent a lot of time with them. Um, and, uh, yeah, I remember, you know, just, just dropping them to school, picking them up from school and just kind of like doing that. I hadn't done that. Do you know what I mean? Um, and yeah. And then, um, I got the, I got a call to, um, be a GM for a creative charity in Brixton called Raw Material. Mm. Um, and that was to just write creative programs for, uh, courses for the students there, how do they get into the industry? So I did that for a while, um, which was great, it was rewarding. Um, but whilst I was doing that, I was starting to get back into the studio again and starting to record um, just for myself. No, no agenda, no expectation, which I think is the best way to do it. Mm. And yeah, and you know, it just so happened that my neighbor at the time was a singer called Nathan Adams. And um, we went in the studio and recorded 
and we recorded this track called Circles. Mm. And um, that ended up being the first track on my label called Tribe. Yeah. And that's, that was my kind of my way uh, kind of coming back to myself mm. and what I wanted to be doing mm. for myself. Do you know what I mean? Musically. Yeah. And all of that information that we've spoken about, all, all of those experiences, when I started Tribe, all of that um, suddenly made sense. It all just kind of, oh, that's why I was, you know, working at that market. And that's why I understood distribution. And that's why I understood Zulu. And that's why I went into management. And that's why I was working, you know, all of these, all of this experience, which I had amassed, which for, I'll be honest with you, for a time, I would question myself. It's like, why can't you just stick to one thing, man? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Why, why can't you just kind of be down one road and just do that? Because uh, I kept kind of doing, amassing so much different experiences. Do you know what I mean? Um, and it all just kind of made sense when I started Tribe. It's just like, oh, that's why I've gathered all this information and knowledge. I know how to direct it now through my own label because I hadn't had my own label by that time. Yeah, that's, it's funny to think that, isn't it? When when you sort mm. of look back and put all, put all the sort of your timeline together, it's it's interesting that, that you hadn't had a label prior to that. But as you say, no. the universe has its plan for us, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah, um, yeah, and and tribe um, was was very pivotal in its own way as well, wasn't it? And uh, yeah, the, the parties that were connected to it and everything, and that's um, another very very fascinating and uh, an influential part of your 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 timeline and your story as well. Yeah, well, the, the, the tribe parties were actually when I was working for this um, for this charity, um, I created fundraising events. Um, but I did it from a club point of view. So I was bringing Timmy Regisford, uh, Dennis Ferreira, uh, Spen, Ron Carroll. Um, you know, I was bringing them over to make to raise mo- and to raise money for this charity in Brixton. And I was throwing the parties, at, um, what was called um, the Decks at the time, in Brixton. And I was using that venue to throw the parties um, for it. And, and what would happen as well is that I would, you know, for those who were up for it, I would bring them to the charity to then give like a masterclass to the young kids mm. about production and so on. So yeah. I was kind of incorporating all of that in. Um, and, and then I did a Pevin Everett uh, gig as well, Pevin Everett concert there. Um, under, and it was all under a, this club name, Raw. Um, and um, I did that at the Corsica Studios, the Pevin one. Um, so all of that was kind of also at the same time, kind of building towards Tribe. I didn't even know it at the time, but that's kind of where it was kind of building towards. Um, uh, and I was just, I was making you know a lot of a lot of reigniting connections within the house community because I'd kind of been doing the whole R and B management thing for a while. I was kind of like reestablishing some connections there were as well which was great um so yeah so when i got when i by the time i started tribe i knew okay it's got to be a party as well as a, a label it's got to be both for it to really succeed and they both they they started together and within the same couple of months i started the label and the party That's together cool. tribe to for a number of people that i've spoken to who 
uh, I've now kind of associate with what's what's termed as the Afro house scene. A lot of people pinpoint Tribe as being uh, a party that was quite very important in the, I guess, in the in the inception of what's termed Afro house in London. Yeah, yeah, I guess so because um, around that time. Um, I was picking up a lot of music from South Africa um, and, and playing it. And um, I didn't hear it being played anywhere else. Um, I was just playing it because I loved what I was hearing. Um, and, um, and it wasn't, it wasn't the, the, the term Afro house wasn't being used for it at that mm. time. Um, so yeah, at a tribe party, you would hear, you would hear the soulful cuts as well as, um, um, the deep cuts as well as the the uh, the Afro style, um, but to me it was all one of the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've always had that feeling towards it from Black Market days because that's mm -hmm. how it was. That's where my what my heart's telling me to play, mm -hmm. and what my heart's telling me to do, and and that's where my belief is. And yeah. um, and I and I really felt strongly about certain tracks getting heard mm -hmm. because again it connected straight away with my culture yeah. and my history. Yeah. Straight away, it, you know, it, it connected with me. So, um, and I wasn't hearing that in a lot of house music at the time. And even, even when I had done, um, made circles, I'd made circles before I had um, kind of come across a lot of that, that vibe. And I just wanted to make something soulful um, and percussive. Um, you know, uh, for the dance floor mm. that kind of resonated with my culture. Um, and then all this music started to come in from South Africa that was very rhythmical um, and was just really connecting. And it was soulful, you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, so yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't into trying to compromise to just kind of, uh, I'm not here for the money. Do you know what I mean? I'm not here for the money. So um, I, I don't need to compromise. That's a question I always ask myself is that, is this in alignment with me mm. and what I want to be doing? Do you know what I mean? Um, and if it's not, I'm not interested. Yeah, man. Yeah. Can't um, be easy though. It's not easy. Um, but you know, uh, an another thing about um, music is that you can't rely on music mm. to feed you. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? If it's, if it's where your true passion is, you can't rely on it. You have to have something else that feeds you. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I've always been about that. Do you know what I mean? It's like my music was, is my passion, but it's not my main breadwinner. Do you know what I mean? So it's, um, and I think you have to have, well, with me, the, 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 where I am, you know what I mean? It, it, it's, I just feel that that's necessary because I think when you're a creative spirit, if you rely too much on what you're creating to support you, it will actually turn against, you'll turn against it at yeah. some point. You'll become bitter with it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and I've always wanted to protect that. Do you know what I mean? And protect that, that, um, that feeling mm. that I have towards music. Um, you know, and, and play what it is that, you know, I've 
want to play and yeah. resonate with her. And I don't want to change or jump to another scene because that scene is now paying the big bucks. Yeah, and now sure. I want to go over there and now I'm going to change my record collection to go over to that. Mm. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm just not that guy. Yeah, I, I totally, totally feel you on that. And, and it's, it's something that I, I think a lot of artists go through this almost perpetual dilemma of wanting to be true to, to what they, they want to do, but also like, how am I going to pay the bills? Whereas if you've yeah. got something that does support you financially, you can just enjoy that freedom creatively. Yeah. And um, I think a lot, a, lot of, a lot of artists struggle with that, not even just in music, you know, like visual artists and stuff as well. Um, it's almost like this, yeah, like I said, like a perpetual dilemma. Like I, I go for it myself sometimes, yeah. you know, like I, yeah. I want to I pursue like music journalism and I want to write about interesting things, but you know what, yeah. it doesn't, doesn't really pay the bills. So I'm doing like bills, yeah. copywriting and stuff behind the scenes. and Exactly. Still being creative in some way, but you know, maybe not. Well, necessarily. You, you have a trade, don't you? You yeah. have a trade, and you use it, and you use a trade. So, you know, if you're if you're a producer, maybe your 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 trade is engineering, and you mm. can engineer for others, for instance. And you just you just got another uh, income stream coming in. Yeah. Mine is, you know, I've I've been doing events for so many years. I can manage other events, and mm. that's what I do. I manage events for other people, or I consult on events for other people um, and uh, you know and that's what I can do outside of making music mm. that allows me to make music with freedom do you know what mm. I mean um, you know because it, it's, it's not it's not easy anyone who's anyone who's out there who's really truly passionate about a particular sound or genre um, that they want to do um, that's coming from within them they'll always have that dilemma mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and putting yourself into that. I mean, you have to have a focus. There's no doubt about it. You have to have a focus, mm. but you know, being in there without no income, it's hard, man. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. So um, yeah, there's a, there's a way to, I think you have to set yourself up as a creative. Definitely. Um, so, so where are you up to now then? What's um what's happening? Because you're you're still run, tribe's still going, isn't it? And um you're, you're still making music and stuff. And could you just give give me some insight as to to how things are, are working for you right now? Yeah. So now I, what I'm doing right now is um, really focusing more so on my own productions mm. um, and taking that time. You know, tribe has had a really good run for the past twelve years, um, and whilst it's released my music as well as many others um, and albums from many others, I've, I haven't released an album for myself. Hmm. Um, so, uh, so now I'm just like, you know, what? I, that's, that's where I need to put my attention to um, and really kind of like get that out. Hmm. Um, again, I think it's that same thing. You, you start something with, with a certain intention and then, you know, it, it can take, it, if you allow it, it kind of takes its own pathway. And, um, and Tribe did do that and it was great, but it's just, it's got to a stage now where I just feel like, you know, I need to just kind of like be focused on getting some of my, I've just got drives and drives of music that I just need to be focused on getting it out. Um, and that's, and that's been my attention as well as um, I 
since moving to Australia, I started another record label as well called Inner Source. Mm. Um, and that's just because I, I came across a live house music scene here. So you've got young guys here who's um, trained, whether they be classically trained or through jazz, and they're bringing that expertise into and that talent into the electrical electronic format and performing it live wow. as house. So I was wowed by it. Yeah. And um, I was like, oh yeah, I'd, I'd love to just kind of, you know, give some of these bands the opportunity to release music. Um, and I have been, I, did, I, I started off with a compilation which is compiled by um, Horatio Luna, who is very much one of the founding fathers of this kind of vibe here. And um, got another, um, band here called Only, who I'm just about to release, and another band called Lush Life. Um, and, they, and, they, and these guys, you know, they, they're not DJs, they perform as bands. Wow. Um, and so, so yeah, I'm really excited about it, because, it, I mean, it's very small. It's a very small scene, but, you know, I love to be in on something from the beginning, do you know what I mean, and watch it grow, and, and, and it's just kind of like planting those seeds and assisting, assisting wherever I can sit, uh, assist, you know. Well, you've got such a vast amount of knowledge and experience now to impart to people, haven't you? So I'm sure, yeah, with your yeah. guidance, man, they're gonna definitely. Well, yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of the guys here are doing their thing already as well. Yeah. You know, there are some labels here who's already releasing this material, and mm. I think it's just getting it. I, I think it's just about getting it to an international stage mm. and outside of Australia because some of it really deserves to be heard. So yeah, so that's been that's been a lot of my focus, and yeah, and just trying to knock, knock, knock the tracks out in the studio. Um, not been releasing that much on Tribe of late, um, just because my focus has really been um, about the studio. Where, where do you see yourself going with everything? Is there, do you have any kind of like, you know, have you envisioned where you might like to be in, in like, you know, say like five years time or anything, or are you kind of like wanting to get this album done and then, then it'll be whatever the next step is after that? Yeah, no expectations, man. Mm. No expectations. Um, I'm just, I'm just, you know, taking every day as it comes and just giving what I'm working on now, giving, my, giving it my all, yeah. and then, and then seeing where that develops. Um, and my goal setting is for now. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Um, what I need to focus on for now. You know, from week to week. Mm. That's kind of how I've reduced my goals. So I've done the whole thing of, oh yeah, I'm, I'm ambitious. I want to be there in five years. I want to be there. I, I just I just can't do that anymore. I'm just kind of like I'm just like I'm not I'm not concerned with the expectations anymore. I just want to deliver what I'm feeling to deliver in the present time, and that will speak for itself. Do you mm. know what I mean? In terms of let me see where the result of what I create. Let me see where that's going to lead me next. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And and I, I, I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying that process and, and rolling with that process and, um, you know, and just, yeah, going with the flow, man. Go Brilliant, flow. man. Brilliant. And just to finish up, how, how does it feel for you having the kind of conversation that we've just had, for example, and, and, and sort of tracking back over the, your history and the memories that you have? And do, do you ever, like, take the time to just reflect over all of the stuff that you've achieved and experienced and go, wow, like that's, that's really interesting for a start, but also like, you know, it's just, how does it make you yeah. feel, man? 
yeah, I'm in my early 50s now. So I think now when you get to this age, you start to look back and reflect and see, um, you know, have a look at what you've done mm. and have a look at your failures in the mm. right way. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because I've, I've failed a lot. I failed a lot. But, you know, there was, a, there was a point in my life when I was kind of like beating myself up for these failures. Yeah. Oh, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I do that? You know what I mean? And beating myself up for the mistakes. There was a, because, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes. Mm. Um, and uh, especially around my management time, I made a hell of a lot of mistakes. You know what I mean? Um, and, uh, but now I look, at, I look at those failures as my teacher. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Man. And 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 I've 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 learned so much over the years from the mis, you know probably more I've learned more from my failures than I have anything else. Do you mm. know what I mean? Um, that's that's what's really helped to guide me. And and so when I'm reflecting, I'm kind of looking back to that. Do you know what I mean? Um, I'm looking I'm looking back to see okay how did I do it then and okay, I made a mistake in this way. Okay, so, you know, and, and you kind of bring that up to date, you know what I mean? Because that's your experience, you know? Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, 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 I'm enjoying this stage in life, you know what I mean? When I can look back and reflect in that way and kind of go into my memory banks of everything that's happened in all these different kinds of circumstances and kind of bring them up to date and, you know, help guide and navigate what I'm doing now, so to speak. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and help me with my course of action and my decisions now. And that's 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 wealth for me. You know what I mean? That that that's for me. That's that's what I look at as my wealth. Do you know what I mean? In terms of being able to uh, and being grateful to be able yeah. to do that and have that those experiences to look back on and and draw upon. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, man. There's a lot to be said for gratitude, though. Yeah, big time. Yeah. I have it. I have it every day. Um, <laughs> yeah, I say it every day. Well, thanks so much, man. It's been an absolute pleasure talking through all of your history and learning lots more about you, man. And um, thanks, yeah, man. Yeah, thanks for taking the time and and thanks for everything that you've done over the years, man. Because oh, you know, definitely it. played a, a, an important role in um, in electronic music history for sure. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to RA's Exchange with Zephyrin Saint and Marcus Barnes. You can browse our full archive on your favourite podcast platform. Be sure to subscribe to The Exchange so that you can receive updates from us. And if you love this show, please do leave us a review as it helps get our stories to more ears. Until next time, take care. You open up my soul.